is time to get started. I've been told that all of the orange is not Clemson. I've been told that it's Tennessee. There was a big game yesterday or something. So, All right, we are talking about 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're talking about uh, a study of the qualifications of elders. And this is the third week in here on that topic. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 gives the qualifications of elders. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 also gives some qualifications. Most of them overlap, but there's a few extra in Timothy that Titus does not have and vice versa. And so we started reading from Timothy's account and we let that be the basis of our study. And then we started going through these qualifications and we were, I think we were down to about uh, that one when we left off. But very quickly, it starts in verse 1. If a man desires the office of a bishop, I told you that I don't believe this is a qualification, but a clarification. Then he says, a bishop or an elder must be blameless. That means of such a character that no accusation could really stand against him because he's got a clean uh, background. He's got a clean history. People think well of him. Next, he must be the husband of one wife. That tells us that he must be a man, and he must be a married man. Next, he must be vigilant. The New King James says temperate. The ESV says self-controlled. Then he must be sober. The New King James says sober-minded. It means sensible, serious-minded. Normally, we associate the word sober with alcohol and um, not drinking alcohol. This particular word comes from two Greek words that means to save the mind. That is, it's a person who's got a clear mind. Now, a person could lose this qualification just because of age. You know, if Alzheimer's began to set in or something that affected him so that he did not have a clear mind. Next, he must be of good behavior. The best way to translate this is that he's a gentleman. He uh, presents himself appropriately. He's not rude. He's not crude. He's not given to rebellious behavior. Next, he must be given to hospitality. Titus chapter 1 and verse 8 says he's a lover of hospitality. This comes from two Greek words, friendly and stranger. Quite literally, this means he's a lover of strangers. And you can see why that would be important to an elder. Next, he must be apt to teach. This means able and skillful at teaching, and we know that because he's demonstrated it. You can't say he's able and skillful, but it's a secret. Nobody's ever seen him do it. So this is a person who practices it. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 says that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And so an elder has to know the word and he has to be able to communicate it. Next, he must not be given to wine. An elder cannot be a person who consumes alcohol. Next, not a striker or a brawler. The New King James says he can't be violent. He must be gentle. He's not a quarrelsome person. Titus adds that he must not be soon angry. He's not a striker. This is not an ornery person who is uh, going to fight verbally or uh, especially one who's not going to fight physically. And this carries with it the idea, not a striker or not a bruiser. If you've got a man who's going to have a fist fight, he's not an elder. 
He's not qualified to be an elder. Next, he is not covetous or greedy of filthy lucre. The New King James says he's not greedy for money. Paul is telling us a man with an unhealthy desire for material possessions can't be an elder. If he's covetous and he loves his stuff, he's not elder material. Next, patient. The New King James says gentle. The idea seems to be he's fair-minded, mild, gentle, suitable, a person who behaves himself seemly. There are some characteristics that would overlap with that of a gentleman. Next, he rules his own house well. Verse 4 says, one who rules his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, verse 5 is very important. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the house of God? Now, we learned several things, and I think this is where we were when we stopped last time. Number one, he must have children. People get hung up on this because they will say the word is children, it's plural, he must have at least two. And we went through some passages, I won't do it again, but we noticed that the word children is used generically in the Bible, and it is frequently used to refer to a situation where there's only one child. In fact, Sarah and Abraham, after Isaac was born, Sarah had one child, but the Bible says she had children. And so if we let the Bible define this, a person who is an elder must have at least one child, and then it says they must be faithful. Now, in uh, the account in Timothy, it says that he rules his house well, having his children in subjection. Titus says he must have faithful children. The word for faithful comes from the same root that we get the word of faith or a believer. And so I believe what he is saying is an elder must have at least one child who is a faithful Christian. Um, the question comes up, and this might be where the bell rang last week, what about after they leave the house? People will say, well, after a, a child's left the house, then the elder has no say over them anymore, and so it shouldn't matter after he leaves the house. This particular phrase about having faithful children is a present active participle. The thrust of that is it's in the present tense. It's a continuous action. When we teach 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, we've oftentimes taught the blood of, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. And we've emphasized the tense that it continues to cleanse us. And we say, God didn't do that by accident. He gave us the tense, and it is important. When you read having faithful children, the same thing is true. It quite literally could be translated as continues to have faithful children. And people say, well, if they're out of the house, it doesn't matter. The qualification says continues to have faithful children. Well, then people get hung up on the debate of the household. They'll say, well, it says he rules his household well, having faithful children, and if they're not under his roof, they're not in his household. But I pointed out to you last week in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when it discusses widows, it says, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially they of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. The discussion there is a widow. And so let's say that um, 
you have started your own family, you've got children, your mom and dad are in another house, your dad dies, your mom is now a widow, and you say, eh, I'm not going to care for her. If any does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Do you think this person could get by and say, well, they don't actually live under my roof, so they're not of my household? That's not the point. The word household is used to include the family and those who are your responsibility. And so I believe quite literally, if we take it as it is written, he continues to have faithful children. Now, it is asserted sometimes you can't count children who are grown and out of the house because you can't rule someone on that basis. How can he be ruling his house if they are out of the house? But I think the, the point in verse number 5 of 1 Timothy 3 is the key to this, and that is he says if a man can't rule his own house, how can he rule the household of God? You are looking <clears throat> at this person, and you're looking at how their children are to make a judgment of whether they are fit to lead the church. I have heard someone put it this way, and I think it was well said. If you look at a shipbuilder, and you see if he's skilled, you can't really know if he's a skilled shipbuilder while the ship is still in dry dock. You have to put it out in the water and let it sail before you'll know whether he could produce a good ship. And there's a similar thing you could say about children. While they're in his house, maybe he can maintain control and make sure that they do what they're supposed to, but you really see something about how he has raised them when they leave the house. You know, Proverbs 22, train up a child the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You'll see something about the training of that individual after they have left the house, and again, it says, currently having faithful children. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so the question is not, have his children been faithful in the past? The question is not, was there a time when his children were baptized? The question was not, did he used to be a good dad? The question is, does he currently have faithful children? Because that is what Titus says to us. Now, I'm going to come back at the end and I deal with some difficult questions and I'm going to say some more about that. But for now, let's go to the next qualification. And that is that he not be a novice. The Greek word for novice literally means newly planted. And so the idea is, in fact, in the margin of the King James Bible, it says one who has newly come to the faith. The idea is, if a man is a new convert, then he's not qualified to be an elder. And so you've got a man, he was baptized, you know, a month ago or a few months ago, and you're going to install him as an elder. Well, the Lord says you're not to do that because he's a novice, and it says, lest he be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so here is a man, he's been a Christian for two months, and you make him an elder, it might just go to his head. I've been a Christian two months. I'm already leading this place. I'm already an elder. And the Lord said that's the very reason, one of the reasons, that you are not to do that. <clears throat> one older preacher said it this way, and I wrote it down because I liked it. He said the only way for one to not be a novice is for him to spend years in service as a faithful Christian 
There are no shortcuts. If a man is going to be an elder, he's been a Christian and a faithful one for a long time so that you can look at him and observe this. All right, the next one says, he must be one having a good report. Now, 1 Timothy 3, 7 says, Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. What does it mean when it says he must have a good report with them that are without? Yeah, with non-Christians. Who are those that are within? That would be the members of the church. So those that are without would be non-Christians. If a man's going to serve as an elder and be one of the leaders or overseers of the church, why does he have to have a good report amongst those who are outside of the church? What difference does it make what they think? Okay, he's going to be an example to the flock. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, and so... It's not enough that his own brethren think highly of him. He must also hold the respect of those that are outside of the church, those who are not even Christians. You know, members of the church generally, oftentimes, don't really get to know each other as they should. A lot of times, we see each other at church functions where everybody's dressed up and they're on their best behavior. And if you're always seeing a person under those circumstances, they might look like the epitome of Christianity. But if you see a person among the world during the week, you might find out something different. If you work with them, you might find out something different. And certainly you can see how an elder, as a representative of the church, is going to have to have a good reputation. Imagine what people are going to think of the church if we have a man who is an elder, but he's known for dishonest business practices. People that he works with know that he will cook the books or he twists or he lies or even he's got a bad temper and he will fly off the handle even if he doesn't say bad words, but he just has a short fuse and then they know he's one of the elders in the church. How's that reflect on the church? You could say the same thing about a preacher. If you've got a preacher who behaves that way, how's that work? You could say that about any Christian really, right? Any Christian who's out acting in an ungodly way reflects on the church, but especially one who is a leader in the church. He's got to have a good report with those that are without. All right, next. <clears throat> this is one that is included in Titus, but it is not stated in Timothy, and that is he cannot be self-willed. What does that mean? that he's not self-willed. He's got to have his own way. It's, we, we use the, the phrase, my way or the highway. This is not a man. He, he's not dominated by self-interest. He could be inconsiderate. He arrogantly asserts his will. It could be that this man is just going to be a, a dominant personality, and he comes in and he just runs the show. You know, I think an elder has to be very, very careful because imagine if you're one who has a dominant personality and then you have another elder and there's only two of you and maybe he's got a very uh, submissive type personality. What could easily happen under those circumstances? You might have a man who turns into a diatrophies 
You might have one man running the eldership, and uh, probably some of you have seen that sort of thing. If you've got that type of personality, and there's two of you, you need to work very hard to bring that other person out and make sure that they participate in the decisions and make sure that you don't fall into this. An elder like that, you can rest assured, will be a constant problem for the church. One characteristic that elders must possess is selflessness. All right, those are the qualifications. Let me summarize them. He has a good reputation inside and outside of the church. He is scripturally married. He's reasonable and level-headed. He's hospitable. He doesn't drink alcohol in any amount. He teaches. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's a gentleman. He's not difficult and hard to get along with. He rules his house well. He is a father with Christian children, at least one. He is not a new convert. He doesn't love money. And he's faithful to the Lord in all things. Titus 1 verse 8 says he is holy and just. All right. Any questions before I delve into some of the difficult ones that I've heard? All right. Let's dive in. Number one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he, I have been told by people that watch online when a person asks a question that they can't hear it, and I've been asked, would you please repeat it so that people watching online uh, can know what was said. So I'm going to summarize um, what Jonathan just said, and if I botch it up, let me know. But his question basically is, if you have a person, we say that a man must have a living wife. And if his wife dies, he's no longer qualified. What if his children die? What if he's got one child and he becomes an elder and his children and that child dies? Can he still serve as an elder because he doesn't currently have faithful children? Is that the question? Okay. I believe that there is something that is very distinctly different between the husband-wife situation and the parent-child situation. Number one, when a person's spouse dies, you're no longer married. If your wife dies, you no longer have a wife. You are no longer a husband unless you remarry. If your children die, you're still a parent, right? That doesn't, death doesn't sever the relationship of parent-child. And so, does a person have faithful children? If a person has a child who dies in a faithful condition to the Lord, I certainly think uh, their situation as a, uh, a father having faithful children, certainly if they have died, he's still their father. And uh, if they, were, they died faithfully, I would have to argue they're still faithful. So, um, yeah. Did I see another hand over here? Okay. Thought I did. All right. Let's dive into some of these questions that I've heard come up over the years. One of them... I know a man who is uh, out in Texas in the congregation where he is. Uh, his name was put up to be an elder, but someone objected very strongly because they said he was a divorced individual and he has remarried. Therefore, they said he cannot serve as an elder. 
I would ask, why not? The person argued that he's not the husband of one wife. They're incorrect about this. The idea of being the husband of one wife carries with it the idea they currently have one wife. If this man, and this, his situation was that his first wife committed adultery, committed fornication, he put her away scripturally according to Matthew 19.9. God released him from that. She is no longer his wife. He remarries scripturally, and he is now the husband of one wife. And so he is not in violation of that qualification, and he does not have two wives. If he had two wives, he'd be a polygamist. When he put the first wife away and he remarried, he is now scriptural, he's approved of God, and that is a situation where he legitimately can serve as an elder. Now, this man said that uh, the person who was um, opposed to him was making such a stink that he opted to not serve and he took his name out because he didn't want to cause a problem in the church. Well, that was his choice to do so, but I believe he was qualified. Now, I've also heard this same objection come up. If a person's wife um, has died and he remarries, I've heard people say, he's got two wives now. He, he had one and the first one died. Now he's got the second one. No, he doesn't have two wives. He only has one wife because when his wife died, the marriage, the marriage situation ended, and he was a bachelor. If he wasn't, he couldn't remarry. When he remarried, he had one wife. And so if it is a scriptural arrangement, death or a scriptural divorce should not preclude him from becoming an elder. All right? What about um, if his wife dies and he decides, I'm going to just continue to be an elder? but he doesn't remarry. I believe, I know some brethren who disagree with me on this, but I believe he is not qualified to continue to be an elder. Why? Because the text says he is presently the husband of one wife. That is the way the tense is written. And so you can ask the question, it doesn't say, was he once the husband of one wife? It doesn't say, was he the husband of one wife at the time he was installed? It quite literally says, is he presently the husband of one wife? And so if his wife were to pass away, then he is to step down. And there are some things that would be much more difficult for him as an elder if he had lost his wife. I think losing your wife changes you. Being hospitable would be more difficult and so forth. Okay. Um, what about when objections are raised? Sometimes a person will be put forth to be an elder, their name will be suggested, and there will be unscriptural objections. Maybe, you know, I just don't like this guy. What, whatever the objection is, I have heard objections to people, and they were not scriptural objections. The elders who are in place at that time, or if you don't have elders, maybe it's the men's business committee, if they are not scriptural, they should be dismissed. God has given us the qualifications that we are to consider, and that's what we need to think about. We should not add to the qualifications. We should not take away from the qualifications. Next, what if only one person objects? What if you've got a congregation this size, and one person objects to you being an elder, 
and they have something like they say, um, you know, I don't think he teaches enough, and they go to the elders. Well, what do you do with that? This really becomes a judgment call for the man if he wants to press forward. If the current eldership wants to press forward, they're going to make an assessment. If one person objects and he wants to go forward and the elders want to go forward, I see no reason why he should not. If 50 people object, I think he would be making a big mistake to press forward. I know of a situation where in the last couple of years, they were going to install elders. One man's name was put up, and probably a third, maybe half the congregation objected, and he fought it, and it became a big blow up, and he went ahead and pressed forward, and they installed him, and it literally cut the congregation in half. That was a mistake. He should not have pressed ahead under those circumstances. Um, you also have to consider the nature of the objections. If one of the qualifications is he must be uh, well thought of with those who are without, and so you've got to think about that. Um, what are they saying? Sometimes you might get some strange accusations. I know of a situation in Alabama from years ago. They objected, the community objected to this man, but it was for something that he had done 25 years earlier. It was a small town. People still um, knew it. They still talked about it. And uh, this was the objection that was made. I think the current eldership could easily dismiss that, but there's going to be judgment that comes into something like that. Next, um, I've heard people object when the preacher is installed as an elder. Um, I have served as a preacher and an elder at two congregations. Um, I currently am thankful that I don't because it is a heavy burden and uh, it is the most difficult thing I have ever done in my life. We've got good elders here and I'm thankful for that. But to say a preacher cannot serve as an elder is not scriptural. I have heard brethren, they get up in arms about this, but what happens is you are adding to the qualifications that God has not stated. First Peter chapter 5, uh, the apostle Peter, as he's addressing elders, he states, I also am an elder. Peter was an apostle, and he was a preacher, and he was an elder. In the New Testament, oftentimes elders were ones who preached to congregations. And so we need to be careful not to uh, make qualifications where God hasn't. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, if a man is a preacher and you make him an elder, then he's going to have uh, too much power. He's going to run the show. Well, if that's the case and he's that type of man, then he's not qualified because he's self-willed. But he should be ruled out on the basis that he's self-willed, not on the basis that he also preaches the gospel. We need to be sure that uh, he is not, that we don't add to the qualifications and that we don't take care of the qualifications, or take away from the qualifications. All right, let me bring up some of the objections that are sometimes offered about the family. Sometimes people will say this, an elder cannot rule the homes of his children after they have married and departed from the immediate domain of their father. And so when a child marries, he establishes his own home. The father cannot rule that home. And so he relinquishes any further responsibility. The reason they say that is they are objecting to dealing with um, children who have left the home. 
They say you can't consider them having to be faithful. But here's the response to that. The text does not call for the father to coerce his children to believe once they have left the home, or he doesn't have to force them while they're still in the home. Rather, the text says that he is to manage his children while they're under his immediate control so that they will remain faithful. That's the point. It's not saying that once they leave his house, he has to continue to control them, but rather this is a measurement of how he has done. Does he have faithful children? And it seems to be implying, did he raise them upright? Number two, um, if, does this require elders to continue to possess? If, if it requires children, elders to continue to possess believing children, then an elder would be required to resign if his children become unfaithful. That's an objection that's sometimes raised. And they're saying, well, if you're saying, let's say a man's got one child, and that child is faithful, and then the man's made an elder and, you know, five years pass, and that child just ceases to be faithful. People are saying, well, if you're going to consider the conduct of a child after he leaves the house, that means if he becomes unfaithful, then he can't be an elder anymore. I would say I agree with that. You know, we would look at the other qualifications about him being married. If his wife dies, he can't be an elder anymore. What if he becomes greedy for money after he becomes an elder? Any time an elder ceases to have one of the qualifications, he can't be an elder anymore. We can't say uh, we're going to ignore this qualification because um, it would uh, affect a lot of people. Uh, okay, we'll stop there and uh, we'll look at some more of the objections uh, next week, and then we'll talk about deacons.